0: Hi everyone, how's it going? Now you might remember me as Jimmy Boyo from the Ion series on the Uber Boyo channel. In that series, we recorded ourselves discussing the contents of Carl Jung's Ion, sometimes line by line, in an attempt to decipher what it meant. Now, since then I've been qualified as a clinician and have learned a great deal about Jungian psychodynamics through my mentorship with Steve and Pauline Richards, and indeed through my increasing amount of real world experience as a therapist. And As such, I recently revisited Ion, just for fun, and I realized that there's something we all missed when we went through it the first time around. This is something so unbelievably essential that it reframes the meaning of the entire book, both for Jung, the man, and for you, the interested reader. It's clear to me now that what we thought Jung was doing was actually not what he was doing at all. So to explain what I mean, I'm going to be drawing on Collected Works 2, 8, 16 and 18, the New Testament and the canon of Joachim of Fior, an essential figure in the grand drama that Jung laid out. What's underneath the story isn't a clash between Christ and Satan at all. The book all along was about you. I really, really hope that you enjoy. Oh, and by the way, the script for this video is an essay that I've written as part of Jung to Live By's flagship offering, Discover Your Personal Myth, Ultimate Handbook. It's the distillation of over a hundred years of the canon of psychotherapy teaching you in a fully practical way how to individuate through discovering your personal myth. The core of the work is on your own complexes, your anima or your animus, or as we call it, your relating function, and your instincts. Now, Myself, Steve and Pauline really, really hope that you enjoy it. So without any further ado, here's the terrifying secret that everyone missed in Carl Jung's Ion. Act 1. The Curious Case of C.G. Jung's Ion. In the spirit of depth psychology, the study of ideas presupposes the necessity to employ a forensic attitude of mind. You, as the viewer of this video, in this moment, perhaps unknowingly, are positioned within the timeline of the ideas put forward by Carl Jung, and your entire autobiographical context is brought with you. Unconsciously to shape your understanding interest and interpretation of the relevance of certain ideas over others You might be drawn to read further after watching this video or perhaps to drop your study altogether Maybe you become so captivated by the words that you hear in this video that you decide to proselytize your relating function shaped by your personal myth drew you to this video for a reason that is at the very least pre-conscious in neuropsychoanalytic terms and will aid in what you yourself receive from it. This is true of all of one's interest in one set of ideas over another. It is driven by the psychodynamic interaction between complexes and the relating function, powered by the genomic self attempting to unfold in an optimally adaptive manner across one's lifespan development. As was discussed on the channel previously, and in the Personal Myth Guide, we have come to an understanding of why Jung switched paths from his clinical work, which defined the early volumes of his collected works, towards the more theological and philosophical route of the alchemical writings that defined his later career. Just as Jung had a personal myth, in part inherited from his parents, and his psychoanalytic and literary forebearers, so too do his ideas, that were passed down to him from the minds that came before, and have continued their life beyond his personal death. Many psychodynamic terms now compose our current collective consciousness, with perhaps the most obvious being popularized by Sigmund Freud, such as libido and the unconscious. However, persona, shadow, archetype, hero's journey, and many others from the lexicon of Jung are also circulating in equal standing. These are but a few examples of ideas that can live on as quote-unquote cultural complexes after the one who is credited with discovering them has passed away. All these ideas have their own through-line, a personal myth of sorts, which continues in every individual they are consumed to, regardless of whether they are pro- or maladaptive. To illustrate this concept, we'll use the ideas contained within ION as a case study. In contrast with, for example, Collected Works Volume 3, Psychogenesis of Mental Disease, ION has exploded in popularity online in recent years, and has taken on a figurative life of its own. One might come to read ION and think nothing of it, but the experience of thousands of individuals online, of which I have personally spoken to hundreds over direct message and online consultation, is one of great significance and captivation with the contents which frequently go on to dominate one's libido for a substantial period of time afterwards. In investigating why this might be the case, one must ask a simple question. What makes one set of ideas more popular than another? It is highly unlikely that if I presented you with the chemical structure of 2-propylbupane-1,4-diol, one would not take much of an interest unless their background was in organic chemistry, a field which would have significance for them personally. But, if presented with a grand narrative of the coming clash between Christ and Satan within one's lifetime, which puts them at the epicentre of 2,000 years of history, the core premise of ION, written by a man with significant academic and clinical repute, it is perhaps easier to reverse-engineer why certain demographics would find this viscerally appealing. Of course, an individual can come to find themselves interested in ION for any number of reasons. Their own personal context will be important for determining why. However, the demographic the Young-To-Live-By team is familiar with is the loosely-defined Boyos, as I, James, or Jimmy Boyo in the past, co-created the ION series on YouTube that defined the quote-unquote Boyo phenomenon, and helped propel ION into its current state of online popularity, or its own minor quote-unquote cultural complex. The individuals that compose this demographic Though an explication necessitates a simplification, or perhaps a stereotyping, self-describe themselves to the Young to Live By team very frequently as following a remarkably similar trajectory, as shown in the diagram on screen now. It starts with a lack of confirmation from the father, and that then leads to an attachment to the works of one or more of the four horsemen of new atheism. Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, Christopher Hitchens, or Sam Harris. And then these individuals described feeling lost in the past, or indeed in the present, very recently. And most prominently, this comes across as a self-described distress from the compulsive use of pornography. Then they discover, through one means or another, the works of Carl Jung and Friedrich Nietzsche, and they become attached to them. And then that leads, of course, to an interest in Ion. Now, by showing an interest in a set of ideas, in this case, Ion, in an autobiographical format, one can see that the example individual's personal context already primed them to receive this work. In this case, the etiology is usually a negative father complex that leads one to relate suboptimally to themselves and their psychosocial environment, or in other words, a, quote, lack of meaning. This has a sympathetic resonance with the oft-perceived relative cold rationality of the figureheads of modern atheism. This usually then transfers, in psychodynamic terms, onto an intermediary internet guru or entrepreneur, of which there are numerous examples, and then further transfers onto the image of Carl Jung or Friedrich Nietzsche as a father imago, in an attempt by the psyche at the level of the unconscious at self-cure for the original wound that was inflicted on them. Now when a guru points someone towards Jung, Nietzsche or Ion with a description that they are terrifying or at the very least worthy of investigation, then they provide an unconscious mission to those who look up to them to investigate further, to inherit the as-yet unresolved struggle of 2000 years of Christendom as described by Jung. It hands the Boyo a multi-generational Ariadna thread to wrap themselves within, a place to assert one's libido, or at least this is how it FEELS to the stereotypical Boyo. The influence of the individual one perceives through projection to be a father and margo on their set of interests cannot be understated. It is a necessity to separate one's identity from the parents to truly individuate. Of course, the hypnotic nature of Ion makes it a much stronger candidate to consume one's libido than the average book that one might find in their local bookstore. But the reason behind one's relating function or the anima or the animus flowing to it is highly personal and multifactorial. For Jung the man, as discussed again in the personal myth guide and on previous videos on the channel, the reason behind his writing of this book in the first place is rooted in his attempt to solve or at the very least contain his own father complex. An interest in an idea is never random. The psyche will never attract you to things that are cool, simply because they are cool. This reflects a universal depth psychology truth, coined by Steve Richards. By his libido shall ye know him. An interest in an idea can be reverse-engineered, if done with care, to reveal the psychodynamic substrate of the individual in question. Of course, the above example of the stereotypical Boyo is merely a 1st pass glance at one example, but the same principle is true for everybody. This necessitates an element of unconsciousness, as Ion will therefore form part of the outer shell of an ego-aligned or ego-identified complex that drives the libido towards the ideas and, by definition, influence that person's adaptation. There is no value judgment built into this statement. Complexes simply are, and it is only when they become maladaptive does it concern a clinician. What then could there possibly be that we could consider a maladaptation that concerns an interest in Ion. Now, For this, let's consider how the source material of the collected works has been handled through the decades, as seen in the diagram on screen. There are three prominent inherited threads to the collected works. The first is the obvious one, the clinical tradition named Jungian analysis, that is currently in its third wave. Psychosystems analysis is an example of a clinical model that incorporates elements of Jungian analysis in addition to General Systems Theory, Humanistic Medicine, and Dialectical Syncretism. The purpose of this thread at core is to reduce the suffering of a patient. And the second thread is broadly what we would describe as cultural. For this, The Hero with a Thousand Faces by Joseph Campbell is the prime contributor, which sits as a Pop-Jungian canonical text that went on to inspire many, many Hollywood filmmakers, most prominently George Lucas and his Star Wars space opera saga. The word archetype is often applied to characters in film, TV and literature, in particular the hero archetype. The excitement that one feels from spotting archetypes in media is an unconscious recognition at the level of complex and instinct simultaneously that there is more to the psyche than simply the ego. The unconscious purpose then is to trigger self-actualization. Though without a consistent theoretical framework, the efficacy of this is usually suboptimal, not to mention the fact that it is, in 99% of cases, unconscious. Instead, it remains as a fantasy, a captivating, often benign one, but a fantasy nonetheless. Now, the third thread is distinctly philosophical, in contrast to the clinical, as it is virtual. The most prominent contributors to this field are Eric Neumann, preeminently his Origins and History of Consciousness, and Edward Edinger. Their work layout out hypotheses derived from the collected works as to how the psyche operates. So what's the purpose of this thread then? Well, it's unconsciously used as a containing vessel for the contents of the psyche, to produce something that explains you to you. Most people come to develop a personal set of values or philosophy over their lives, and this thread is identical to this, albeit in a virtual Jungian, not CG Jung, framework. In the diagram, the modern popularity of ION is not shown to descend from the Jungian analysts, but instead from the cultural and philosophical Jungians. It was never used clinically by Jung, the man, and is never cited in clinical works outside of a general reference to the definition of an archetype. ION is, therefore, carried forward by the unconscious purpose of both of those threads. To trigger self-actualization, and to provide a containing vessel for the current contents of the psyche of the individual reading it. I'm sure that most people, upon hearing this, would have no disagreement. The psyche colours something as interesting or captivating for a reason, which is usually rooted in the imperative of the genomic self to unfold across the lifespan. We are evolved human beings after all. It is clear to see, therefore, how ion is accrued to the outer shell of a complex, or indeed form its own complex in an individual. If one learns about it from the Ion series, for example, on YouTube, it will be filtered through the complex of, say, myself in 2018 and 2019, which were built up over my own personal myth. One is likely to receive a greater emphasis on the labelled scientific aspect of the book, which naturally appealed more to myself due to my training in molecular biology. If, however, you choose to learn about it through the Ion lectures by Edward Edinger, then the experience, and therefore the nature of the resultant complex, will be starkly different. In contrast to the Ion series, one would receive a greater dose of the Christian mysticism part of the text, as is consistent with the interests of the author in question. A famous quote, taken from Collected Works 8, Structure and Dynamics of the Psyche, suddenly becomes pertinent. Everyone knows nowadays that people have complexes. What is not so well known, though far more important theoretically, Is that complexes can have us one who becomes captivated by ion is not in control of said interest rather it is ion that has control of them gaining a foothold on by definition of psychodynamics a maladapted related function as discussed earlier in videos on the channel to return to a previous question then what then could a maladaptation be that concerns an interest in ion Now, the answer to this is actually revealed in the text itself. Once one has had the psychological hygiene to approach it for what it is, a containing vessel for the contents of C.G. Jung's psyche, his personal myth. A complex takes hold on top of a maladapted relating function and accrues ion to the surface in an attempt at self-cure, or, if we're being more sinister about it, a distraction for the ego. This must be remembered. Let us now turn our attention to the source material in question and travel through the story and the main ideas that Jung described in Ion. I will not be discussing everything within the text. This is simply an investigative process through which we will attempt to answer two core questions. The first is, what was Jung really doing by writing Ion? Of course, we've already discussed on the channel, as I keep saying, that it was a containing vessel for his own complexes and a preeminent example of his own personal myth. This will be demonstrated further. Now the second question is far more pertinent. How does one resolve themselves? Now the answer is the same as for all complexes. In broad terms, it would be a biopsychosocial working through process with an initial and usually primary emphasis on their personal myth. However, in true poetic fashion, the answer to this is also found in Ion, in clues that Young leaves for the reader that we all missed when we went through it the first time. to quote Jung in the four words to Ion, I write as a physician, with a physician's sense of responsibility, and not as a proselytite. Act 2, The Mind-Body Problem and the Self. The first four chapters of Ion form somewhat of their own subsection of the text, pacing and leading the reader through the different layers of the psyche from the perspective of the author. Jung begins with a description of the Ego as a psychosomatic structure which is phenomenologically identified by that which we call I. Like the tip of an iceberg, most of the psyche remains underwater, or what is labelled the unconscious. The first layer of the unconscious, called the personal unconscious, is defined broadly as the shadow, which is described as containing our repressed character traits, including the darker parts of human nature, which we chose, at an earlier point in our timeline, to push down, to aid in optimal psychosocial adaptation. Separate to this, in a part of the psyche labelled as the collective unconscious, is the anima, for men, or the animus, for women. Jung describes these as the projection-making factor, and in this text, somewhat in contrast to his other writings on the subject, they are coloured in a dangerous light. They are certainly shown to be the relating function, as we've discussed on the channel, in particular between men and women. However, they are very clearly displayed in a distinctly more mythological light. Once these parts of the psyche are defined, the author then begins to describe a higher order, purely psychological, in contrast to the psychosomatic ego, entity that he calls the self. This is psychic totality, which is simultaneously its own structure and yet contains all the previously-labeled psychodynamic systems. The given emphasis is not on proving its existence. Jung presumes the reader has read the previous nine volumes of his collected works for this. But, in short, he believed that the self manifests as synchronicities, religious experiences, and dream symbols of wholeness, such as a mandala, when an individual makes a step forward towards further individuation. Primarily, it is the self that then becomes the topic of investigation for the rest of the text, where a circumambulation of the ego around it is the marker of an individual who is individuating healthily. Employing that forensic attitude of mind, it is fairly trivial to see why Jung began Ion with this subsection. He started by grounding the conscious part of the psyche in the neuroscience available to him at the time of writing. The hypnotherapists would call this pacing. And then, he slowly moved away from the biology and empirical experience towards an increasingly more numinous and mythologized description of the inner workings of the psyche. The hypnotherapists would call this leading. Pacing and then leading. The ego remains largely unchanged from the work of Sigmund Freud but the shadow is short on an emphasis of the whole context of an organism and instead describes a more psychological process of returning to a homeostasis through integration of unconscious shadow contents. That is the first leading step that begins the hypnotic induction towards the self. The syzygy, or the anima and animus, is even more divorced from everyday life, and yet a greater emphasis is placed on this, not just for the individual, but for the state of the entire world. The induction continues. Then the self is introduced as the most important structure of them all, and something that everybody should be working towards understanding in their everyday life, if they wish to achieve what cultures have called many things, Dharma, Enlightenment, or Tao. Thus, a canonical path through life is set up, which readies the reader to receive the following part of the book. Now, to stress, we do not believe that Jung was objectively wrong with any of this. Quite the contrary, as everything he's described thus far is clinically demonstrable, except for the emphasis on the purely psychological nature of the self. Of course, as with every field, his concepts have needed, and indeed have received, significant updates based on more than half a century of clinical work, genetics. neuroscience. Instead of focusing on what was right and what was wrong, just as we've established that one's interest in Ion is, by virtue of psychodynamic fact rooted in their own personal myth, we should examine what the author was doing. Now it is wise to take a slight detour here to illustrate how Jung modified his opinion on the relationship between psyche and soma, or body, across his career. In Collected Works 8, Structure and Dynamics of the Psyche, he writes the following Mind and body are presumably a pair of opposites and, as such, the expression of a single entity whose essential nature is not knowable, either from its outward material manifestation or from inner direct perception. According to an ancient belief, man arose from the coming together of a soul and a body. It would probably be more correct to speak of an unknowable living being, concerning the ultimate nature of which nothing can be said except that it vaguely expresses the quintessence of life. This living being appears outwardly as the material body, but inwardly as a series of images of the vital activities taking place within it. They are two sides of the same coin, and we cannot rid ourselves of the doubt that perhaps this whole separation of mind and body may finally prove to be merely a device of reason for the purpose of conscious discrimination an intellectually necessary separation of one and the same fact into two aspects, to which we then illegitimately attribute an independent existence. It is difficult to imagine how he could be clearer. He plants his flag in the ground, firmly on side with Sigmund Freud and the early hypnotherapists, in believing mind and body are, quote, two sides of the same coin, and away from the dualism of the Western philosophical tradition, most prominently marked by Descartes, And the Christian philosophers. However, at the end of his career in Collected Works 18, The Symbolic Life, he appears to have modified his opinion to some indeterminable degree when discussing his thoughts on the resurrection of Christ, which has strong thematic parallels with the contents of Ion. Since we are psychic beings and not entirely dependent upon space and time, we can easily understand the central importance of the resurrection idea, We are not completely subjected to the powers of annihilation because our psychic totality reaches beyond the barrier of space and time. We know only positively of the fact that space and time are relative to the psyche. Before providing some expansion on what Jung means here, philosophically, let us first note that he described us as psychic beings, rather than psychobiological beings, or similar words to that effect. That, in my opinion, is revealing in and of itself. Of course, that label does not exclude the other, but it is a data point nonetheless. So to illustrate what he was describing, let us consider a tree falling in the woods, letting off a crash when it finishes its descent. Did it make a sound? Objectively, yes, it did. The familiar crunch of leaves being crumpled under pressure is a product of our psyche interacting with information from the environment. So indeed, the tree produced sound waves, but it did not technically produce a sound as that depends on there being a conscious observer present. As an additional angle, let us consider the concept of light. Light is the human perception of subatomic entities called photons. Whenever a packet of photons hits our eyes, enabling us to see, we call that light. Through space, they move forward at the speed of light, the absolute speed limit the law of the universe has set in place, approximately 300,000 kilometers per second. Why is this the speed limit? As at first glance, this number appears arbitrary. The answer lies in the relative nature of space-time. Whenever something travels a given distance in space, it must, to perception, have a corresponding distance in time. How far you travel in each unit of time defines your speed. However, the speed at which you travel initiates feedback onto your perception of time. The faster you move, the slower time appears to move for you. This begs the question, is there a limit to how compressed time can appear for you? Indeed there is, and it happens at the aforementioned speed of light. At this staggering rate of movement, time stops from the perspective of light. If you could transform yourself into a photon, you could go about your day and when you decided to transform back, you would realize that no time had passed by for you. As time cannot get any slower than zero, you cannot travel faster than light. Most peculiarly still, space is subject to the same shortening phenomenon. Just like time compressing to a single point, so too does space cease to have any observable geometry. So, the idea that space and time are relative to the psyche in the previous quote holds true, philosophically, as it cannot be clinically demonstrated, if one follows that the psyche co-creates the experience of the universe that the ego receives, both through perception and its interaction with space-time. Loosely, this is what Jung is referring to in the above passage, and it does indeed make for a convincing first-pass philosophical hypothesis. However, factually, there are two problems with this line of reasoning. The first being the multiplicity of opinions amongst physicists, many of whom would categorically disagree with what was just said, and whether or not it was even close to being correct. And the second being that it would hold true regardless of whether Psyche and Soma are separate. It is the physical substrate of the conscious or unconscious observer that interacts with the outside measurable stimulus, for example, light or sound, to produce the experience. Jung, however, appears to steer clear of any mention of Soma, save for a passing hint in the same essay. To the primitive Christians, as to all primitives, the resurrection had to be a concrete, materialistic event to be seen by the eyes and touched by the hands, as if the spirit had no existence of its own, Even in modern times, people cannot easily grasp the reality of a psychic event unless it is concrete at the same time. And speaking of Christ, he says, Whether he was the eternally living Christ and Logos, we do not know. These two quotes in unison clearly demonstrate that Jung believed that if there was any truth to the resurrection, it was first and foremost at the very least a psychological, not a psychobiological occurrence. If Christ is simply an example of the mythological motif of the dying and resurrecting God-man, then we and Jung could leave the investigation into the resurrection there, despite the clear hint to the contrary in the latter quote. However, by setting up the baseline assumption described as a fact that Psyche, not Soma, is to some degree independent to space-time, then we immediately find ourselves outside of the realm of where the archetype in question can be clinically investigated, and where the Psyche itself, rather than the archetype, is that which is capable of resurrection. So, in short, the self can be described in one way as, in the opinion of Jung, that part of us which is akin to Christ. It is possibly capable of existing outside of space-time, meaning the individual human spirit, as a phenomenological experience, could live on forever. So, we have shown that Jung's personal belief as to the separation between mind and body, of great importance to understanding his concept of the self, is at the very least complicated and not clearly reasoned. One can certainly, through significant investigation, see the philosophical line of thought he was distilling, regardless of its questionable scientific validity however there is a final challenge of significant note rooted in both the catholic tradition and the gospel of john which reveals that jung did not have a coherent method for determining which pieces of christian mythology that he chose to accept and which he chose to reject Dissensus ad inferos is an early church story without a direct apostolic correlate which describes what Christ was doing in the three days between his bodily death at the crucifixion and his bodily resurrection. He descended into hell and brought salvation to everyone who had died since the beginning of the world who believed in the one true God. Despite its lack of scriptural documentation, except for Old Testament prophecies, the story has become a significant part of the, for example, Catholic canon. The preeminent Renaissance poet Dante Alighieri wrote the following in Canto 4 of Inferno, from his Divine Comedy. I was a novice in this state, when I saw hither come a mighty one, with a sign of victory in coronet. Hence he drew forth the shade of the first parent, and that of his son Abel, and of Noah, of Moses the lawgiver and the obedient, Abraham patriarch and David king, Israel with his father and his children, for Rachel for whose sake he did so much, and others many, and he made them blessed. And thou must know that earlier than these, never were any human spirits saved. Here, Virgil is retelling Dante how soon after he died, historically in 19 BCE, he saw Christ come into hell and save many Old Testament characters. Virgil, however, being a pagan, was not saved. To complete this picture then, John chapter 20 verses 24 to 29 says, A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. The final challenge to Jung's belief about the separation between Psyche and Soma is found by building a picture out of the two previously described stories. At the crucifixion, Christ's body died, but his soul lived on in independence, having descended into hell. Then at the resurrection, his soul rejoined his body. Thomas could touch Christ post-resurrection, which clearly demarks that Christ is at least part body. So in Christian mythology, there is a clear independence between mind and body, but in the end, the body is also able to rise. Paul would agree with this, as he writes in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 about the end of the world. For the Lord himself will descend from the heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will be the first to rise. After that, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Those who are alive will meet with the Lord. Life post-death is bodily. Now we can consider a single line in Jung's On Resurrection to draw this section to a close. The fact of the resurrection is historically doubtful. So here's the kicker. The Christian tradition that Jung uses to make a case that Psyche and not Soma is what is capable of transcendence independent of space-time is at odds with his own conclusion, and he at odds with it. His source material is explicitly contrary to his own beliefs and vice versa. Perhaps this is why Ion is subtitled, Researches into the Phenomenology of the Self. In other words, how the Self feels rather than what the Self is. Phenomenology is, by definition, subjective to the individual. So, what are we to infer from this then? That Jung was wrong? That he was mad for even being preoccupied with this? They're both indeed possible, if one ends the investigation here, without continuing with Ion. In true Jungian fashion, the above would polarise the audience listening to this into two opposite camps. Those who believe that he was writing nonsense, and those who believed that he was absolutely right. The conclusion one must draw if they are to continue further with a serious attitude of mind is that Jung, on this issue, and indeed with Ion, was not concerned with fact. More so, he was concerned with the phenomenology of the self, his quote-unquote capital S self. The material in this section is a working through process that would and should not make a difference to a listener's interpretation or adaptation of the world. But for Jung, it did as will be explored as we continue on. Having taken this important detour, we now have enough background to continue with Ion, and to return to the previously posed core questions. What was Jung doing by writing Ion? And, how does one resolve themselves? Act 3. The Three Aeons and the Relating Function. The second loose subsection of Ion consists of chapters 5 to 13. Here, the author describes a grand narrative that begins, for the sake of investigation, in the spring of 7 BC and ends in an undisclosed year between 1997 and 2154, derived from astrology, Christian and Jewish mythology, and history. Most believe, regardless of religious faith, that Christ was born in 1 AD, But if one also believes that there was indeed a star above his birthplace in Bethlehem, then this cannot be true, as there was no historical correlate in that year. Instead, Jung believed that Christ was born in the sign of Gemini, the Twins, in 7 BC, where there was a significant astrological event in the sky that everyone would have seen, a conjunction between Saturn and Jupiter. He believed this marked the start of the Aeon of Pisces. He writes, It would be clear that he talking about Christ, was born as the first fish of Pisces, and died as the last ram of the declining Ares era. However, Jung deviates further still from tradition, and draws on several Jewish stories to hypothesize that it was not one, but two fish that were born. Just like Pisces is two fish swimming in opposite or perpendicular directions, he thought there must have been an opposite to balance out Christ. This is, of course, the Antichrist, or Satan. The author did not describe these as good versus evil. Instead, he believed that Christ represented the spiritual, or mind in the mind-body problem, and Satan represented material. The author then tracks the changing dominance of beliefs within Western Christendom in correspondence with major astrological events, relying most heavily on the work of Joachim of Fiore, an Italian abbot who was born around 1135 and died in 1202. The story in Ion is not original. They have their origins in Joachim's four major works, which are listed on screen in Latin, as I cannot even attempt to pronounce Latin. Joachim is most prominent for his theory of the Three Ages, a division of history into three major aeons, the evidence cited being the literary and numerological correspondence within scripture and church history. The first era of time was the Age of the Father, marked by the Old Testament, where man was expected to obey the rules that God had given them, for example, the commandments handed to Moses on Mount Sinai. Complementing this, in Collected Works 16, The Practice of Psychotherapy, Jung writes, Our present-day civilization with its cult of consciousness, if this can be called civilization, has a Christian stamp, which means that neither anima nor animus is integrated, but is still in the state of projection i.e. expressed by dogma in a psychological sense therefore if one has a dependence on dogma to instruct them how to relate then they have a poorly developed relating function both Joachim and Jung agree controversially that this is how civilization began in a civilized sense before christian dogma the world was a savage place of paganism and dogma was the way through which we saved ourselves through in psychological terms relating however Just as that projection can be withdrawn and consciousness raised, so too does the aeon in which we find ourselves in move forwards. The second era of time was the Age of the Sun, represented by the New Testament, which corresponds with the time between Christ's birth and the year 1260. This period was when mankind had, through engagement with the Church, a chance to take their place as a redeemed son of God alongside Christ. Psychologically, there is not much of a change between the first two ages. Both rely on a text to instruct them how to live. However, there is one key difference, as is described in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37-40. to 40. Jesus declared, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. One can observe here the nascency of a more psychological set of commandments. Before, in the age of the father, man was expected to obey a plethora of rules. Now, one can rely on just two, which begin with an internal affect, in this case love. And the others, all the other rules, will flow from them. Love is, of course, the absolute core of relating to oneself And to others. So, why does the age of the Sun end in the year 1260? This date is far more dubious, which is why when Jung describes his own derived date, he varies it between 1189, 1239, and simply the era of the Holy Ghost movement, based on the astrological correlates. Jung observed that this period was when the second fish of Pisces began to become dominant in the night sky, corresponding to a change from the dominance of Christ to Satan. Again, this was meant as a switch between the focus on spiritual to its opposite material. As described in Ion, Joachim stated that he believed the Third Age would soon be upon them, and Gerard of Borgo San Donino, one of Joachim's followers, proclaimed in 1254 that it would be 1260, marked not by Biblical scripture like the previous two ages, but indeed by Joachim's writings. With that forensic attitude of mind, then, one can begin to unravel the certainty of the hypothesis. But to employ it here would simply stunt the investigation into what Jung was doing by writing the text, instead of simply whether or not he was correct. After all, Jung writes himself in the foreword to Ion. Nor do I write as a scholar, otherwise I would wisely barricade myself behind the safe walls of my specialism, and not, on account of my inadequate knowledge of history, expose myself to critical attack and damage my scientific reputation. So far as my capacities allow, restricted as they are by old age and illness, I have made every effort to document my material as reliably as possible and to assist the verification of my conclusions by citing the sources." As discussed earlier, and indeed as that makes crystal clear, Jung was not primarily concerned with facts as they present concretely. He was up to something else. The third and final era of time for Joachim was the Age of the Holy Spirit, where the true meaning of scripture would finally be revealed, not just in a literal sense, as was the dominant belief at the time. The church would become unnecessary, and every man would be capable of containing the Holy Spirit within them, rather than being contained within biblical writings and church dogma. Joachim's writings were condemned as heretical by the Catholic Church, as one could, I am sure, quite easily predict. Beginning from around the dawn of the 16th century, Western Christianity began to experience some cataclysmic challenges in line with Joachim's prediction that there would come a time when man would come to understand the true and not the literal meaning of God's word. In 1517, Martin Luther wrote his famous 95 Theses, providing the catalyst for the Reformation which dominated religious life in Europe for centuries In 1543, Copernicus published his On the Revolutions of the Heavenly Spheres, laying out his evidence for a heliocentric model of the universe. In 1616, Galileo was first challenged by the Church for his additions to this theory, directly demonstrating that the Bible, if believed to contain literal truth about the physical nature of the world, is categorically wrong. In 1620, in his Novum Organum, Francis Bacon put forward his Baconian method, the widely-credited precursor to the scientific method which would have his apex, for consequence for the Church, in Charles Darwin's 1859 work on the Origin of Species. Man was not created in the literal image and likeness of God, but instead evolved through, as Richard Dawkins would later describe, the non-random survival of randomly varying replicators. The focus on the spiritual, as the cultural dominant, had indeed morphed into a focus on the material, roughly corresponding to ages, marked by astrological events involving Saturn, Jupiter, and the constellation of Pisces. Jung's concern with this, writing in 1951, when Ion was published, was the subsequent decay in constraints around human moral behaviour. In 1945, the apex of the application of the scientific method to war, the USA dropped two atomic bombs on Japan, on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. For the first time, humanity had crafted a means to destroy itself, permanently. For the first 1000 years post-Christ, Western Christendom was dominated by the Christ Fish of Pisces, a focus on the spiritual side of man. For the most recent 1000 years, beginning around the time Joachim was active, the skies were watched over by the Satan Fish, which corresponded with a steady rise in the preeminence of the belief in the primacy of the material world. So how does this story end? According to Jung, the transition into Aquarius, the next Aeon, occurred either in 1997, will occur in 2154, or presumably at some time in between those two dates. Regardless, the nature of the coming of the new Aeon is aptly described by Edward Edinger in his Aeon lectures. We are about to enter the Aeon of Aquarius, the water carrier, and in a sense Jung is the last fish and the first water carrier. Aquarius carries water, does not live within, nor is contained by it, indicating a totally different relation to the psyche. Edinger is clearly putting Jung, the man, at the epicentre of the transition into the Aeon of Aquarius. Rather than a clash between Christ and Satan, like one might infer through hypnotic induction, the coming change is supposedly one of psychodynamics, a new way of viewing ourselves, akin to Joachim's age of the Holy Spirit. Psyche, as a concept, is indeed a solution to the mind-body problem, if considered psychobiologically. It is the middle way unification of spiritual, Christ, and material, Satan. Edinger describes a vision Jung once had in the same text. To understand it, one should be familiar with the image that adorns the front of Ion, on screen now, that of the Mithraic god of the same name. Let us return to the frontispiece of Ion, where we started. It will be recalled that this is a picture of the Mithraic god Ion, a human figure winged with a lion's head encircled by a great serpent. This image also comes up in Jung's experience of confrontation with the unconscious. It is not in Memories, Dreams, Reflections, but is to be found in the 1925 seminar account, which Memories reproduces only partially. Jung describes his encounter with Elijah and Salome, and his descent to the unconscious. He met Salome and Elijah, and there was also a serpent with them. Then a most disagreeable thing happened. Salome became very interested in me and she assumed that I could cure her blindness. She began to worship me. I said, why do you worship me? And she replied, you are Christ. In spite of my objections, she maintained this. I said, this is madness and became filled with skeptical resistance. Then I saw the snake approach me. She came close and began to encircle me and press me in her coils. The coils reached up to my heart. I realized as I struggled that I had assumed the attitude of the crucifixion. In the agony and the struggle, I sweated so profusely that the water flowed down on all sides of me. Then Salome rose and she could see. While the snake was pressing me, I felt that my face had taken on the face of an animal of prey, a lion or a tiger. This parallels the image of Aeon. Now, what does this vision mean? I think that one of the things it means is that Jung is the first representative of the new Aeon. And it was his experience to go through the initiation of being identified with the god Ion. Jung is the new Ion. He is the harbinger of the new Ion. What I call and what I think will be in the future called the Jungian Aeon. Jung could not have perceived and summarized the content of the Aeon of Pisces unless he was already outside it. You cannot see something in its totality objectively until you are already out of it. Jung was already in the next Aeon, so to speak. Just as Christ was the first person to enter the Aeon of Pisces, so Jung is the first to inaugurate the Aeon of Aquarius. If Jung is the new Christ of this Aeon, then Edinger certainly sees himself as the new Paul, either by virtue or by quote-unquote archetype. In evangelizing in this way, one is reminded of the first section of this video, where we discuss the complex that Aeon can form when described by the individual teaching its contents. One is and led by Jung through Ion, and one is simultaneously and led by Edinger to accept the preeminence of Jung, the man, in this grand narrative. However, is Edinger correct here? Well, was it Joachim who thought of himself as the harbinger of the Third Age? No, that was ascribed to him posthumously by his followers. The same applies to Jung, as was summed up brilliantly by a famous quote of his. "'Thank God I am Young." and not a Jungian. Aquarius represented, too Jung, a time for man to carry the content of his own psyche, this is crystal clear, to resolve himself in opposition to the previous aeons of belief systems that obscure, through projection, introjection, and identification. How could one agree with this, and yet contain themselves within Ion? To do so would be to revert back, metaphorically, to a Pisces way of viewing the world, split right down the middle, divided within and without. Jung and Wakim, in their investigations, were doing the exact same thing from a psychodynamic perspective. Waakim, of course, lacked the virtue of our modern psychological literacy, and so the prophesied true meaning of his discoveries were just that, prophecies, to be revealed to other people in the future. The purpose of his work was very much unconscious to him, except with the broad idea that one day, man would find the answer to his completion within him. Jung, on the other hand, was conscious of what he was doing. His work was indeed the solution to the grand narrative that he had quote-unquote discovered. As the famous song goes, Jung completed the circle for himself. Ion justifies himself to himself. Let me explain. The mistake that proselytites of Ion make is the proselytizing in the first place. As Joachim himself would have said, the time for dogmatic ideas is best left in the Old Testament. Ion is not, by definition of the ideas within the book itself, to be held up as something to follow, or indeed to be captivated by. As we discussed earlier, and as described by Jung in the foreword to the book, he was not concerned with historical or scientific fact. It is the attempt by Jung to resolve himself. He was a man who wrestled with the Christianity he inherited from his father his entire life, and spent many years trying to keep himself sane, as clearly demonstrable in the Red Book and the newly published Black Books. Those were two problems he was extremely concerned with. So, in Ion, he places his era in history as the time for resolving the mind-body problem, immediately after the dropping of the atomic bomb on Japan, within a Christian context that leads to the conclusion that his work, that pertaining to Psyche, is the solution. How is it the solution, though? That is never stated. To do so would have revealed Jung's hand as just another proselyte. It is the solution for him, Jung the man. For us, our solution is different that will come from us as individuals. That is the, metaphorically speaking, Aquarian way of going through life. To relate properly is not to consume oneself by complexes, nor is it to follow dogma to constrain one's own behaviour. As over 100 years of clinical experience is demonstrated, from Sigmund Freud, through Carl Jung, and right up to the clinicians of the present day, we know that proper relating is the solution to yourself. That is the antidote to Thanatos, and therefore, if one can be so bold, the built-in genetic, biopsychosocial meaning of life. Is that not what Christ said was the core to the Christian way of life? Love. Christ had his own personal myth and his teachings, though many considered to be universal moral truths, had their etiology initially within him, his own personal myth. The same is true of Joachim and indeed of Jung. All three through lived experience discovered subjective truths that aided in their own adaptation to the world. And we can learn from those if we do so choose. But as Christ said in Luke chapter 17 verse 21. The kingdom of God is within you. Your own personal myth is within you. And you are living it in this very moment. The solution as all three men would agree. Is not to go and contain yourself by ion. By the old testament. Or any set of ideas outside of yourself. It is love. Relating properly. That's is the true terrifying secret within Ion. The Personal Myth Ultimate Handbook is now available for pre-order for release on January 21st, 2021. For anyone who has a yearning deep in their very genome to become who they truly feel they should be, this guide is utterly indispensable. Pick up your copy today and make 2021 the year you truly begin to become yourself.